I sometimes think that a modern Gibbon might write a history of China in recent centuries under the title Decline and Fall of Confucianism. The fall was all the greater because Confucius cast the Chinese people into a mold which it retained for 2,500 years. <coughs> Let us glance at this development or this lack of development for a few minutes. The Chinese civilization may be said to have assumed its mold, its Confucian mold, in the fifth century BC. It was an amazing period in the history of mankind. In different parts of the world, men thought about fundamentals. They thought about the nature of man and the nature of God, the relations, relation between man and God, the relation between the state and the individual. It was at about this time that Buddha and Mahavira arose in India. Plato and Socrates in Greece, and the hundred schools, the so-called hundred schools of philosophy in China. The hundred schools. It brings an echo to our ears. Mao Zedong also once spoke about a hundred schools. Well, he put it more, more, more rhetorically. He, he, he called them the hundred flowers. Five, four or five years ago, Mao Zedong made a famous speech in the course of which he said, let a hundred flowers bloom and different thoughts contend. Never has a politician made a remark which has turned out to be more ironical. Soon after he said this, a few timid flowers began to bloom in China. But hardly had they sprouted when the government and the party decided that they were not flowers at all. They were weeds, poisonous weeds, and set about stamping them out. And today, in China, there is only one flower, a red flower, a blood-red flower, the flower of Marxism, not even Marxism, Maoism or Stalinism, a flower which looks down upon other flowers even in the communist garden, which calls these other flowers revisionist and deviationist. There is only one flower which is wholly to the liking of the Chinese gardener, and that is the flower grown in Albania. Well, let us look, if we have time, at, at some of these hundred schools. In the fifth century, the, the hundred, there, were a hundred, there were a hundred schools of philosophy in China. Let's look at two or three of these schools. There was one, Shun Tzu, whose philosophy was very much like that of Hobbes. He began with the same premise about human nature. 
Hobbes said that man in a state of nature he was solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. Shun Tzu said the same. And start, starting with the same premises, he came to the same conclusion and erected the state as a leviathan riding roughshod over all individual liberties. There was another philosopher called Yang Chu who erected selfishness as the cardinal principle of human society. If I could save society, he said, or destroy society by lifting my little finger, I would not do it. Then there were the Mohists who preached universal love. There was Mencius who believed in the goodness of man and had some inkling of the people's rights. But more interesting than them was Lao Tzu, the founder of Taoism. Tao means the path. Every man must follow his own path through life. Take no heed of right or wrong, he said, good or evil. Reconcile everything to the infinity of nature. The Buddhists, too, tried to reconcile themselves to infinity. But the Buddhists, while the Buddhists tried to do so through prayer and meditation, the Taoists went to some river bank or bamboo grove or mountainside and drank gallons of wine. And in this delightful condition was produced some of the finest poetry, some of the finest paintings in China. But the man who was to have a permanent effect on Chinese civilization until a few years ago, that of course was Confucius. Confucius was not a religious teacher. If by religion you mean preoccupation with the other world, Confucius was non-religious, if not irreligious. One of his disciples asked him, what he thought about life after death. You know precious little about life. He said, how can you know anything about death? <laughs> Another of his disciples asked him, Master, is it permissible for us to serve the gods? You do not know how to serve your fellow men. How can you serve the gods? He said. Then again, Another disciple asked him, but should we offer sacrifices to the gods? He said, by all means, sacrifice, offer sacrifices to the gods, but keep them at arm's length. <laughs> and that's what the Chinese have been doing. Unless we, who have been allowing the gods to meddle with our affairs from our birth to death, the Chinese have kept them at arm's length. And that's perhaps one reason why the godless religion of communism could find its way into China so easily. But there was a time in the fourth century AD when it looked as if Taoism 
and Confucianism would be thrust into the background, that was the time when the gracious religion of Buddhism entered China and had a great appeal. But Buddhism in China became debased even more than in other parts of the world. Even when I was in China, we could see families in which the eldest believed in Buddha, the second in Confucius, and the third in Tuti, or the Earth Goddess. Does it denote intellectual tolerance or intellectual cynicism? The Chinese attitude towards religion often reminds me of a conversation between Lord Shaftesbury and an old lady. An old lady went up to Lord Shaftesbury and asked him what religion he belonged to. Wise men, said Lord Shaftesbury, all belong to one religion. What is that religion? asked the inquisitive old lady. Wise men, said Lord Shaftesbury, never tell. Well, Confucius was a wise man and never told. But on mundane matters, on state matters, on matters of private and public morality, he laid down the most elaborate injunctions. Now that pattern is gone. What caused its ultimate overthrow was, of course, communism. But by the time communism came, Confucianism was already in a state of irretrievable decay. One reason for the decay of Confucianism was the impact with the West. The impact with the West in China produced very different results from the impact of India and Europe. The impact, Chinese, the Chinese, as I said before, resented this impact. And the Chinese did not know the nature of the world which had now, which in the 18th century had entered China. It was a world very different from the world which entered China in the early centuries of the Christian era. It was a world very different from the world of Buddhism which went into China. It was a scientific, secular, commercial, assertive, progressive, aggressive world, the world of Western Europe. It was a great misfortune, both for Asia and for Europe, that the first Europeans who came here were the Portuguese. The Portuguese believed that no civilization was worth having other than their own, that the natives were just barbarians to be converted by barbarous means to the ways of God. The other Europeans seemed no better. The Dutch 
had committed the massacre of Amboina, and the Spaniards had exterminated a whole colony in the Philippines, and the British excelled themselves in the two opium wars. In fact, Western diplomats in China, they used to be called table pounders because of their habit of pounding the table whenever they demanded any concessions from China. All this was strange to the Chinese people because the Chinese at least had good manners as long as they followed Confucius. But now they seem to have given up even their manners. The language which they use even in official correspondence today will make Confucius turn in his grave. But that is a recent development. Until recently, they set much store by good manners. And the worst of manners was a loss of temper. And these Europeans who had come into China, they seemed to be perpetually losing their temper. Who were these people, they wondered, who had come as in the capacity of guests to hosts, who were shoving their weight about, who were harassing the people? All this, they thought, was a departure from Confucian manners. And even their appearance was so strange because they had such big eyes and long noses as compared with the Chinese features. <laughs> I remember once my wife and I, we visited the University of Chengdu. The Chinese girls flocked around us because they had never seen Indians before. After we had left, they went to my daughter and said, your mother must have a little foreign blood in her. She has rather large eyes and a prominent nose. I have neither. Your, your mother must have a little foreign blood in her, but your father is all right. He is one of us. And in China, whether you have prominent nose and big eyes or not, even today, you can hear little ch children shouting at foreigners an epithet which is universally used, young quetzal or foreign devils. <laughs> Our experience in Russia was very different. It must be said that in Russia, there is no racial prejudice. There is no color feeling. In fact, your color is often an asset to you. The darker you are, the more you are appreciated. <laughs> In fact, when the girls of our embassy used to go out for a walk, the one who was most admired was the one with the darkest complexion. <laughs> I had a granddaughter born in a Russian hospital. As soon as she was born, the matron telephoned and said that the child was born. My wife asked, is it a boy or a girl? 
And she replied, a girl, a beautiful black girl. <laughs> actually, to judge by, to judge, actually, to judge by our standards, by, certainly by our South Indian standards, she was not particularly black. But it was just another additional compliment shoved in by the matron. The Russians, unlike the Chinese, they do not regard the rest of the world as, to use a Chinese phrase, outer barbarians. Well, the point I was driving at was that while in India there has been a social reformation, in China there was no such social reformation. I realized that when we were in China during the war, we went to a place called Chengdu, no, not Chengdu, to Kunming, the capital of Yunnan, that picturesque province adjoining India, adjoining the McMahon line with a wild confusion of mountain and jungle. We went there and we found that everyone was asleep till 12 o'clock in the morning. No shops were open, no offices were opened. We wondered why. Everybody was under the blissful influence of opium. <laughs> Lung Yun, called the dragon, the warlord of China, he was an opium addict. And the people thought, well, if the ruler can smoke opium, why not we? We called on Lung Yun. He received us as soon as he got up, which is about half past four in the afternoon. And he served us with champagne. He asked me where I had my higher education. I said I was at Oxford. Then he asked Bruce, the British Consul General, who was with me, where he was educated. He said, at Cambridge. So, he said, you were at Bose's University, which was the most devastating thing he could have said, because at that time, Subhashchandra Bose was regarded as a quisling, as a traitor to the cause of the Allies. Of course, I tried to explain to him what Bose was. On another occasion, we vis visited Chengdu, the province near, near um, Tibet. There, the talk of the town was about the matrimonial adventure of a certain warlord. In China, women had a healthy sense of their limitations. When a woman got old, she chose a younger woman for her husband a younger woman who would give her much respect and him much pleasure. She was called the Xiao Tai Tai, or the young wife. This warlord's wife had chosen a woman for him, but she was so little to his liking that at the very moment he went off and married two other women. Well, I'm saying these things not because they are amusing, but to show that as late as the 40s, China <coughs> suffered from such evils as warlordism and opium smoking and 
concubinage. Gradually, people began to think that there was something radically wrong with China. And the Communist Party of China was founded in 1918 by two professors of the Peking University. Their attitude was very different from, from Ram Mohan Roy. They thought that the arch enemy of China was Confucius. Down with Confucianism was their cry. Confucius, they said, was an imperial puppet who monopolized all thought, who dominated the minds of men. And all his principles, such as the despotic privileges of the father or the husband, they were a violation of human rights. And so began a movement which ended in the whole edifice of Chinese civilization being subverted. Take the family, for instance. In China, the family used to be a close-knit unit with the father at the head and a whole lot of ancestors watching them. Now, the father, I suppose, is respected, but not automatically. The father has to justify his conduct to the children. Even the father is subject to the communist principle of criticism and self-criticism. If the father does not behave properly, the children have the right to report him even to the party. Again, the old idea of ancestor worship has been given up. When we were in China, in every Chinese family, there used to be a table of ancestors going back sometimes 30, 40 generations. I was thrilled to meet a man who could trace his descent back to the 70th generation. He was a descendant of Confucius. I also met another man who claimed to be the descendant of Confucius, that was Dr. Kung, the brother-in-law of Chiang Kai-shek. I'm afraid he was singularly devoid of any Confucian virtues. <laughs> well, China for a thousand years used to be run by the Mandarins, a set of scholars. China appointments to the civil service used to be by the open competitive examination. Even today, in the Forbidden City in Peking, you can see the examination hall. And in this examination hall, there is a hole, an aperture. Once the, exa the examination went on for days together, and once the examination began, the doors were hermetically closed. On no account would the doors or windows be opened. And this hall, I was, this hole, I was told, was in order to throw out the body of any candidate who might have fainted during the examination. <laughs> and the subject of the examination was sim simply the precepts of Confucius. The result of it was that when the rest of the world was forging ahead in science, 
Here, China was governed by a set of scholars with very elegant literary tastes, but with little practical ability. Typical of them was the man who was the governor of Canton during the Opium War. He was interested in poetry and painting. Even after the British Army had entered Canton, he refused to believe that they could have entered Canton. He continued to paint and to quote poetry. This did not save him from humiliation. He was put in a sedan chair with a peacock feather in his hand, and he was paraded through the streets of Canton. The rulers of China today are very different. They are ruthless, hard-headed men who have gone through the furnace of war. And their attitude towards war is very different from the attitude of Confucius. Confucius has a famous saying, good iron, he said, is not turned into nails and good men are not turned into soldiers. That is not the attitude of China today. Their attitude towards war is exactly the same as Marx. Marx predicted that there would be a series of wars, each more terrible than the preceding one, in which capitalism would be progressively debilitated, and a final war in which capitalism would be destroyed and communism would triumph. Every communist, until the 20th Congress, every communist used to believe in it as gospel truth. But Mr. Khrushchev had the courage to modify this tenet. At the 20th Congress, he had the courage to say that war is not inevitable. Marx, after all, did not foresee the atom bomb. Khrushchev has the sense to realize that in a nuclear war, not merely capitalism, but communism would be destroyed. And he has changed Marxist theory accordingly. As Mr. Macmillan put it rather well, Mr. Khrushchev was the first communist to have realized that Marx was a pre-atomic man. <laughs> but for the Chinese to say this is heresy. Their whole attitude towards war and peace is very different from that of the Soviet Union, let alone from the rest of the world. Mao Zedong is said to have said that after all, if there were to be a nuclear war, what does it matter? Some 300 million Chinese might die, but we might have still some 400 million left. I would con conclude with a few general observations about these developments. It has been said that in China, that there were only two revolutions. One, the revolution of 221 BC, when a centralized monarchy was established. 
and the other of 1911 AD when that monarchy was overthrown. But now a more violent, more drastic revolution has taken place. The man who effected the revolution of 221 BC, Qin Shi Huangti, he was one of the mightiest tyrants in history. It was he who built the Great Wall, every stone of which is said to have cost a human life. It was he who abolished feudalism at one stroke. 40,000 families, the flower of the aristocracy in China, were sent to work on the Great Wall and to die. But this man who abolished feudalism, he did more. He tried to abolish learning. He tried to abolish literature. He tried to abolish philosophy. Because he thought these things would breed dangerous thoughts, thoughts which were dangerous to his regime. He carried out the famous burning of the books. Whether the present rulers of China have carried out a burning of the books or not, I don't know. But certainly they have debunked Confucius and all that he stood for and cast him on the dung heap of the past. But this emperor, he was not content with abolishing literature, with abolishing philosophy. He would abolish history itself. He called himself the first emperor. He said he was founding a dynasty which was going to last 10,000 years. Actually, the dynasty lasted for 50 years. And the Qin dynasty was followed by the more tolerant and gracious Han dynasty of China. Well, I have seen with my own eyes a somewhat similar development in Russia. I have seen the Stalin era giving way to the Khrushchev era. I have seen the atmosphere of the Stalinist period dark, sinister, dogmatist, obscurantist, giving way to the more tolerant, the more genial, the more agreeable atmosphere of Russia today. Whether a similar change will take place in China, I do not know. All I can say is that there are no signs of it at present. So, the revolution in China has been an all-embracing, all-consuming upheaval. In India, too, we have had something like a revolution, an all-embracing revolution, but not an all-consuming one.